If you'd like to turn to that passage that Vicky just read to us, which is Acts chapter 2, um, which is on page 1091, that would be really helpful. Um, and here's a special prayer for today. Almighty God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant to us the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and to always rejoice in his holy comfort through the merits of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, what would it take for you to sell your house, downsize, and give the balance away? What would it take for you to change your lifestyle and consciously live a much more simple lifestyle so that you could give money away? What would it take to get you to give up life in Sydney, give up your job and go and live in another part of the world where the standard of living isn't anything like as great so that you could become part of that community and you could get involved in that community there? What would it take for that to happen? It's a challenge, isn't it? There are people to do things like that. They're extraordinary people in our book, aren't they? People who get gripped by a cause, by some kind of political ideology maybe, by some sense of need. Or when we see our children in need, there are instances, aren't there, of parents or even grandparents who sacrificially give to give their children a step up on the housing ladder. There are people who do things like that. But they're unusual, aren't they? They're extraordinary people. They're not like us, most of us. Because most of us struggle to get enough money and resources to be able to fund our life and keep it going. And we're just so busy doing that and use up so many of our resources, so much of our resources, just to keep the show on the road. And yet, and yet, here's the thing. Those kinds of things that I've just talked about are the sort of things that happened when the Holy Spirit came upon people in the first century. And not just on the leaders of the community, not just the apostles who'd been with Jesus for three years and seen his resurrection, but on ordinary people. The Holy Spirit came on that first Pentecost and took ordinary people's lives and turned them around, brought about a revolution, reordered them, reorientated them, turned them upside down, and they did extraordinary things, and everybody noticed. And it was because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Something unprecedented had taken place and everybody noticed. Well, that was then, wasn't it? And this is now. That was first century Jerusalem and life was really simple then, wasn't it? I mean, I know that the Roman Empire could make life difficult and it was hard to make ends meet and 
Poverty was rife and life expectancy wasn't anything like it is now. But, but life was simple then. And so when the Holy Spirit came and did these remarkable things and people sold land and property and gave that away, well, well it was easy then, wasn't it? I, you, know, you see, those, those, those people in the first century, they just didn't understand the complexities of life in Willoughby in the 21st century. It's hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. There's the internet and the super and there's the pressure of work and paying the mortgage and going on the holidays and funding the children. It's just so different. So what's that? What happened in the first century when the Holy Spirit was poured out then got to do with now? That is a really important question. Because in my experience, a lot of the time when we come to the Bible, we do a kind of cultural shift. And we throw all kinds of things into the cultural basket of the first century. The fact that they wore different clothes. The fact that they spoke a different language, the fact that they had a different economic and social structure. We throw all those things in the basket, rightly so, but we throw all kinds of other things in as well, which we shouldn't. And the fact of the matter is that what happened to that first Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit has everything to do with us now because it is the same Spirit who is at work now, I was at work then, and we should expect to see parallels between then and now. You see, Christianity, at its heart, the climax of the work of Jesus is the pouring out of the Spirit. Tim has been reminding us at the end of Jesus' life, he says to his disciples that he's going to go away, by which he means he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And he says, it's better for you if I go away. In fact, it's necessary for me to go away because if I don't go away via the cross and the victory that I will achieve on the cross, then I cannot send the Spirit to you. And the point of Jesus going to the cross that will bring forgiveness to us is that God will come and be present amongst us by his spirit and the Holy Spirit will be poured out into the lives of individual people. All kinds of people, rich and poor, men as well as women, young as well as old, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of anything. There's a whole new era that's beginning for human beings in their relationship with God, with the coming of the Spirit, and it's the climax of everything that the Old Testament has talked about. And Jesus is saying, it is necessary for me to leave you to go to the cross so that the Spirit can come, because with the coming of the Spirit, there is the breaking in of the kingdom of God, the presence of God amongst us the beginning of a new age. And that's what happens, that first Pentecost. I want you to notice how Peter explains it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16. Because 
When the Holy Spirit came down, things happened and people said, what is this? I, I, I love that bit. I love that bit. Don't you long for a time when people will see what's going on amongst us as a community and start asking questions, what's going on? And Peter starts to explain it. And in verse 16, he says, This, this pouring out of the Spirit, is that. And what's the that? It's that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, the prophet Joel lived in the Old Testament period, and he was one of the writing prophets. And one of the things he wrote about was the future. Like a lot of the other prophets, like a lot of other parts of the Old Testament, pointing forward to the future, to the fulfillment of promise. And the fulfillment of that promise is the breaking in of a new age, where God will be present in a new and intimate way amongst people. In a personal way, at work in individuals of all different kinds and at work amongst a community of people in a way that's unprecedented. And that will be the beginning of a new age that will signal the end of evil and signal the end of death and the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And Peter says... You know, you guys have been praying for this, haven't you? We Jews, he says, have been praying for this for a long time. I know that's not in the text, but that's basically the background to what he's saying. Every time you go to the temple, part of what you're doing is saying, may the kingdom come, may the kingdom come, may that day of promise come, may the restoration begin. And he says, that that you've prayed for, and that was promised, spoken of by the prophet Joel, has just happened. The Holy Spirit has come. And, and do you notice how he goes on? It's very, very telling for the people of the time. He says, and by the way, this breaking in of the kingdom, the start of this reign of God, do you know whose kingdom it is? Do you know who the king is? Well, it's Jesus. It's the one you crucified. And some of you saw that notice over his cross, didn't you? That ironic notice put up by Pilate. There's Jesus. And Pilate says, I want you to put over his cross, King of the Jews. I have no doubt that what Pilate meant to communicate by that was, this is what happens to anyone who stands up against Rome. We execute kings, not least kings of the Jews. Peter points to that and he says, some of you saw that, I guess, didn't you? Some of you were in the crowd. Maybe some of you laughed. This Jesus you executed is the king, the divine king. Have a look at verse 33, would you? So you need to flick over the page to page 12, 1092. Page 33, or verse 33 rather. 
exalted to the right hand of God, that is, to the place of all power. The right hand of God is just another way of saying to the place of all power, of divine power. He, that is Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And then look at how he goes on in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, King. The kingdom has come. Who is the king? It is Jesus. Who is it who has poured out the Spirit? Only God can pour out the Spirit. Who has poured it out? It is Jesus. Christianity reaches its climax, in a sense, with the coming of the Spirit. Because the coming of the Spirit is about God being present in individual human lives. It's about God being at work by His Spirit. It's about how the Christian life begins. We begin the Christian life with the coming of the Spirit into an individual. And it's about the Holy Spirit being at work, at work amongst a community of people we call the church. The local church, the gathering of people who are followers of Jesus, we are the place of the presence of the Spirit of God. Do you know what that means? It means God is here. And that doesn't mean God is here in the way, in the same way that God, we might say, is everywhere. It means that God is personally present by His Spirit. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about Christianity and you get the impression from the way that they talk that they think Christianity is about living a good life. It's the way that you live. Or it's, for some people, the way they talk, it's as if they think Christianity is about being nice to people. You know, Christians are nice people. And to be a Christian is to be nice to people. Or it's a set of religious duties or practices or a set of beliefs to embrace. Well, it includes all of those things. Christians should be nice to people. If by nice you mean good to them. But at the center, to be a Christian is to have God present in our lives. Personally present. That's how the Christian life begins. With the coming of the Holy Spirit into an individual life. It's a supernatural thing. And it's about the presence and work of the Spirit of God amongst the community of God's people we call the church. Which means the local church is a supernatural group of people. It's a supernatural entity. We're not just people who share a common interest. We are a people who have been gathered by the living God individually indwelt by the presence of the Spirit of God and brought together and He is at work amongst us. That's the local church. So what happens when the Spirit comes to an individual and to a group of people? 
Well, we can work out what happens when the Spirit comes by looking at what happened when the Spirit came. Because it's the same Spirit. So what happens? Number one, the Holy Spirit breaks down our self-centeredness and individualism and creates community. A community of people who are utterly devoted to one another. You know, one of the things that sin does is it separates, it divides, it elevates the self. It is all about me, mine, and my aspirations. But what the Holy Spirit does is begins to break down that and brings together a group of people, a community of people, and binds them together. Christianity is corporate. You see, when you become a Christian, it's not just you and God or you and Jesus. It's about you, God, and Jesus, and us. You are brought into a community of people. It comes up in the baptism service. We are baptized into the body of Christ. Christianity is fundamentally, irredeemably corporate. To have a Christianity that is less than that is not genuine Christianity. And it's about the Holy Spirit growing together a group of people who are committed to each other. Verse 44 of chapter 2. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Isn't that extraordinary? They were so totally devoted to each other that they were willing to care practically for each other in sacrificial ways. The coming of the Holy Spirit begins to break down our individualism and self-centeredness and create a devoted, committed community. Sometimes, you know, that doesn't look um, terribly impressive. You may not feel it's always impressive. You, you know, one of, the, one of the things that really strikes me, let me give you an example here. There's a group of people who will look after young children on a weeknight so that the parents, the young parents, can meet together in a small group and read the Bible together and encourage each other and be together. And, and that's a real challenge for young parents because... Often it's only one, one of them can go because the other one's at home with the children. But there's a group of slightly older people in the congregation who have devotedly given up an evening in the week to look after those children. Some of you who've been doing that may, have not, may not have thought that that was a work of the Spirit. You may not have sensed the import of that as the children lost it and you lost it and you wondered what you were doing there. Or when it's the cold night and you're thinking, I really don't want to go. But you went. That's a work of the Spirit. A group of people devoted to each other, self-sacrificially, is a mark of the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit breaks down our self-centeredness and individualism and creates community. 
the Holy Spirit community. The Holy Spirit, number two, breaks down the power of money and affluence and replaces it with generosity. Some of you are probably thinking, he keeps going on about money and about affluence. Can't he talk about something else? Well, I'd like to think that I do talk about other things, but I'm going to keep talking about money and I'm going to keep talking about affluence because I am absolutely convinced this is one of the most destructive forces at work in our culture for our own spiritual health. Absolutely convinced. It's not that money in and of itself is a bad thing or to be rich is in and of itself to be a bad thing. It is simply the fact that it is profoundly dangerous to be rich. That means that being, for most of us anyway, living in Sydney, being Australian, is a really dangerous place to be, as a, be a Christian. Affluence, wealth easily becomes spiritually and morally corrosive and destructive. And that's what's happening in our society. Our affluence has become our addiction. It is our God substitute. And like all God substitutes, like all idolatry, demands our worship if we are to benefit from it. And all you have to do is look at things like the number of hours that people work and the pressure that people are under. And the destructiveness in terms of relationships, in terms of community. And I'm not suggesting there's an easy way out of that. I am saying that's a sign of the corrosive, destructive power of money and wealth. And we're a greedy society. Life in Willoughby is characterized by greed. We aspire for more. And we work really hard to protect what we've got. Now this isn't just grown on a soapbox. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. You cannot serve God and money. We can wiggle around that as much as we like. It's really clear. If money has become our idol, if we worship our affluence, we cannot serve God. How hard it is, Jesus said, for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which in case you're wondering, is not possible. Try it someday. Jesus is saying it is humanly impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because riches is so spiritually destructive and functions as an idol. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he begins to break down the stranglehold of affluence and replaces it with extraordinary generosity. So would you flick over to chapter 4, please? Chapter 4 and verse 32, which you'll find on page 1094.
All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Extraordinary generosity. When the Holy Spirit works, he begins to break down the stranglehold, the grip of our affluence, and replace it with generosity. And just in case you're not convinced about the destructive power and how deep-rooted that power of money can be, even when the Holy Spirit is at work, then move on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells the story of a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And they see what's been going on. And so they too sell a piece of land. And they give the money to the apostles just like Barnabas and others had. And so to anybody looking around, they would have thought, what a generous couple. How amazing. Holy Spirit's really at work in them. Except they kept back some of the money for themselves. In other words, to all outward appearances, it looked as if they were a spirit-filled couple. Instead, Greed gripped them. And when Peter finds out his reaction is, I think, very instructive. Chapter 5 and verse 3 on page 1095. He says to Ananias, Satan has so filled your heart. Satan has so filled your heart. All he did was kept back some money. Satan has so gripped your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit. This is an example of how corrosive and how deeply destructive money can be. And the outcome for Ananias and Sapphira is a profound warning to us. It's a reminder too that money is a spiritual issue. It's a God issue before ever it's anything else. So when the Holy Spirit came, when he's at work, what happens? He brings community. He brings generosity. Number three, he breaks down human despair and brings joy. We live in a very anxious society, don't we? We're very anxious. We're anxious about what's happening with ice, so we're anxious about what's happening across the world. We're anxious about our super. We're anxious about the next election. We're anxious about all kinds of things. We're anxious about whether we can retain our standard of living. The Holy Spirit brings joy instead of despair. You can't read the book of Acts without being struck by the profound sense of hope that these people have and a profound sense of joy even though they face sometimes the most appalling opposition. It isn't long before some of the leaders have been thrown into prison because they're followers of Jesus. Some of them are executed. 
And then it isn't long before ordinary members of the church are also being harassed and thrown into prison. And yet all the way through, despite all of that opposition, you get that sense of hope and joy. Why? Because the kingdom has come. It's broken in in the presence of the Spirit. It's the start of the reign of Jesus Christ. The start of the reign of peace and flourishing and goodness and love. The kingdom that will last forever. And all these things that they're experiencing are temporary. They will pass when this age passes. But what they have in Christ through the Spirit will never pass. And it gives them a confidence and a joy because they can put their trust in something that is unchanging and absolutely secure. Even though they may be in prison, even though they may lose their money and their house and their children and their families and their career and their reputation. Back to chapter 2, verse 46. It says, they broke bread together with, notice, glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Three things then. Self-centeredness replaced by community. A power of money replaced by generosity. Despair replaced by joy. Those are the kinds of things that happen when the Holy Spirit comes and do you notice people took notice? It had an impact. They saw this community of people and noticed how different they were. They saw that there was something extraordinary about them and the way that they lived and the message that they brought. They looked at their individuals' lives and thought, this doesn't stack up. And they looked at what they were as a community and said, there's something we can't explain here. And of course there wasn't anything that they could explain because it was a work of the Spirit of God. It was God at work amongst them. And some of them saw what was going on and they just embraced that. They said, that's so different from where we are and from our life and our hopelessness. And we want this. And so, verse 47 of chapter 2 these Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There were those who saw what was going on and they responded to it. They embraced the message of Jesus and received the Spirit for themselves and became part of that community. Thousands of them in the first instance. Some responded positively but others responded negatively. So the church very quickly experienced opposition. Its leaders were thrown into prison and so on. Two reactions. Do you know, nowhere in the text does it say at this point, as people observed this young church where the Holy Spirit was at work, nowhere does it say, and there was a third group of people who said, who cares? So what? People were either amazed and responded positively or they were amazed and troubled and reacted negatively. I am more and more convinced that a community of people where the Spirit is at work, where community is being built and there is self-sacrificial love being demonstrated because the Spirit is at work. Where our 
demands of our affluent lifestyle are being replaced by generosity. Where there's a community of hope and joy. But when that happens, and to the extent that that happens, people take notice. Because it contrasts so dramatically with the lives that people are living. It is so countercultural. And it generates a response. Positive in some cases, but I've no doubt hostile in others. Four things then. Community. Generosity. Joy. And an impact on the community around. Let's pull this together. We're not the first century church, are we? There might be a cultural echo of the first century in the fact that some of us wear thongs. Some of you feel a bit first century as you wear your thongs. I don't know. But we're not the first century church. We're not the, the church in Jerusalem then. We're the church in Willoughby. But we are the heirs of those people. And we are recipients of the same Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit was doing then in that culture, in that cultural framework, He is still at work doing in the 21st century in our cultural framework, expressed in our terms. For the same principles still apply. So what should we take from this? I, uh, I don't know, but it's possible that some of you here today, if you're honest, you're Christians by name, but not by experience. You can say the words, I believe in Jesus. You can say the creed. You can say, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. You can affirm Christian values. But remember that the heart, of, the heart of what it means to be a Christian is not just an intellectual assent. It's not just a way of life. It's about the living God becoming present personally in a person's life and beginning to turn it around. And so if you're the kind of Christian where you're a Christian by name but not experience, I want to encourage you to take seriously what Peter says in response to the question that he was asked. When he was explaining what was happening about the coming of the Spirit, some of them in verse 37 said, what should we do? Holy Spirit has come. Jesus is the King. The kingdom has broken in. What should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. That is, you need to change. You need to stop trusting in what you were trusting in. And you need to be baptized, which is the outward symbol of you are trusting in Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. All who turn to Christ, he will pour out the Spirit on you. And that new life will begin So if you're a Christian by name but not experience, I want to encourage you to get the experience. Get the reality. For all of us, 
who are already followers of Christ and for us as a community, I want to encourage us to be praying for an increased work of the Spirit. You see, when the Spirit comes, He doesn't do everything on day one. We are, to use the cliche, on a journey. The Holy Spirit is at work bringing about greater generosity, greater community, greater joy and hope and love. And so I want to encourage us as individuals to be praying for a deeper work of the Spirit in us as individuals, but also for a deeper work of the Spirit of God amongst us as a community of people. So let's pray. Let's be quiet for a moment. Father, you put out the Holy Spirit through Christ on that first Pentecost and he's here with us this morning and so Father, please, would you by your Spirit work in us? Some of us may be struggling. Some of us may be wondering whether we're actually Christians by name but not experience. Some of us may have already a deep longing that you should work more and more in us individually and corporately. Father, you long to do that. You love us. Your great purpose is that you should be present with human beings amongst us as our Lord and our God and also as our friend. So Father, please, Would you work by your spirit amongst us in ever-deepening ways for the glory of Jesus.